trying to get back to the basics of great products. Power comes from sharing information. I try to convince people to slow down. Free. Yeah. Open. This is the Soak Dice Podcast. Before we go to the actual episode, here's a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Hannes Snellemann. Is there a common denominator behind Smartly.io's sale of a majority stake to Providence Equity Partners, SoftBank's acquisition and sale of its stakes in Supercell, and Thelia's investment in Spotify? Yes, there is, and it's called Hannes Snellemann, a Nordic law firm proud to carry the responsibility entrusted to it by these and other clients in pivotal tech-driven transactions. Regardless of the size of a project, Hannes Nelman's dedication and world-class combination of skills and experience remain the same. The firm advises leading and aspiring international and local corporations and investors across all business sectors. Hannes Nelman has the expertise and capacity to handle any demanding local or cross-border matters in which assets are being developed, protected, financed, acquired, or under dispute. Thank you. Let's go to the episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Soaked by Slash podcast. My name is William von der Palen, and with me in Copenhagen is Isak Rautio. Hi, Isak. Hi, William. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you, too. And nice to see you, John Linforce. Welcome as our first uh, guest for this newest season. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. And we're, John, both from, from Helsinki. You've had a considerably more international career than, than at least me so far. So could you maybe, I, I'm sure quite many people know who you are, but just in case, uh, could you set the scene, so to say? Absolutely. So uh, as you pointed out, I was uh, born and bred in Helsinki, uh, grew up there and actually spent the first 23 years of my life in Helsinki. Uh, and then... Uh, you know, as I was graduating from uh, university, I was keen to uh, keen to find opportunities, uh, keen to find international opportunities, and uh, sort of by by hook or crook, I managed to land a job in uh, London uh, at Goldman Sachs, the the U.S. investment bank, and then I actually ended up staying there for seventeen years, um, and and uh, for the last. 10 years of that sort of 17 year period, I was very much focused on technology. So advising technology companies on on, uh, financings, on uh, M&A, working with some of my colleagues on the principal investing side to invest uh, in different uh, companies. So I had the the joy uh, and, and perhaps sometimes the pains associated with working with many of the first generation internet companies in uh, 1999 and 2000 and I, I was actually working both in London and New York during my time at uh, at, at Goldman so uh, was sort of very much involved in that first first wave of uh, internet which uh, actually even 20 years later has been very very helpful uh, to sort of frame various things like you know, ultimate market potential. Uh, obviously, the need the need for the need for real traction with uh, users, uh, and and the importance of capital. Because obviously, you saw this massive wall of capital, uh, uh, basically, be available for for these first generation internet companies grew very rapidly. But obviously, the market 
the, the user numbers weren't really there. But I think that it was very instructive. And then as that sort of dot-com bubble crashed, uh, I ended up switching and focusing uh, focusing on, on working with many of the bigger uh, tech companies in Europe. So Nokia in Finland, Eric, Ericsson in, uh, in, in, uh, uh, in Sweden, SAP, Siemens, uh, etc. Uh, and that lasted for a few years. And then sort of in 2005, 2006, uh, many of many, many sort of uh, entrepreneurs that had been involved in that first boom in two, 1999, 2000 started setting up perhaps their second or even third companies. And then the market sort of started picking a little bit up, uh, up, up from there. Um, and then in 2010, uh, uh, I had the opportunity to join Yuri Milner uh, at DST Global, which was really sort of starting, starting, starting its journey as uh, as, as sort of an international growth equity focused uh, investment house. I had known Yuri for actually for several years before that. Uh, Goldman Sachs had invested in his uh, prior business, Mail.ru. Uh, and we had worked on a number of uh, different things. And actually, a few of my colleagues from Goldman had already joined him. So it was a very natural step. Uh, and, and and obviously, after having been for 17 years in one place, it's with some trepidation that you start on something completely new. Uh, but obviously, in hindsight, uh, it was absolutely the right view. Uh, and in the last 11 years uh, at DST, we've basically been focused on the same thing, which is try to find the strongest founders targeting very significant markets uh, and, and which are on a path to become market leaders or, or uh, even even just expand expand existing market leadership. So and, and we do it completely completely globally and, and as you pointed out, I'm, uh, uh, I've been based in, uh, uh, in Asia since 2011. Uh, I have an office both in Hong Kong and in Beijing. And normally, when when we don't have the 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 unfortunate uh, travel restrictions that we have today, you know, I would be going back and forth between those two places very frequently. Um, but it's been very very interesting to sort of, especially follow closely the emergence uh, and massive growth of the internet market in uh, China, uh, and that's really sort of been my my key focus over the last ten years. Exactly. Yeah. So you have um, a yeah. It's fair to say you have a very very interesting interesting background and and these are the kind of the topics we wanted to focus on today. Yeah. Uh, so so basically, uh, technology, internet, platform economy, and and a bit of COVID uh, <laughs> as well, obviously. Um, and um, yeah, you have a, a long perspective as you as you just said. So maybe not looking back too far because it, it becomes. Uh, maybe almost too long a perspective in that sense. But if we look back maybe, say, 10 years or so, um, how much has the world uh, changed and how, how much has, you know, um, the internet uh, changed the world? We live in the smartphones, these kinds of technologies. And has the that kind of your predictions that you, you I've seen videos where you talked about internet and, and these kinds of trends already about 10 years ago and, and uh, you were correct in many instances uh, when you predicted it. It was going to be big, <laughs> and you had you had some 
some charts showing how how it's going to be exponential and all that. But has this has the pace still surprised you, or did you see it coming? Uh, I think that it probably has surprised everyone or most people. Uh, it, even though we sort of live and breathe this industry twenty four seven, and and I've been doing it for a long time. Uh, I think that what I do, and I think that what a lot of people do, is that you overestimate expected change in the near term and you underestimate it in the long term. And if you think about long term, 10 years, I think is a pretty long time. And I think that it has to do with compounding. Uh, uh, you know, if something grows by 30% a year, um, you know, over one or two years, you know, things don't change necessarily that much. But, you know, if you compound it, compound something over 10 years, it obviously changes absolutely dramatically. And, and I think that it's this growth in the internet sector, which has been compounding at a pretty fast rate for a long period of long period of time, and I think that that's why, you know, many of the predictions that I probably made uh, uh, ten years ago or so have have been uh, have been uh, on the conservative side. And actually, ahead of this uh, ahead of this podcast, um, I dug out some of my old notes. So I think that the first time when I was on stage at Slush was in November, November 2012 uh, in the old uh, cable factory, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And, and uh, I think that I made sort of six or seven predictions where we would be in 2020. And, and the interesting thing is that some of them were sort of more or less in line. Others were were, were, were underestimations when we sort of look at it, uh, what is it, nine years, nine years later, eight, nine years later. So I think that the prediction that I made back then about some of these, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but there, there were a few interesting points. Uh, I think that I predicted that there would be 5 billion internet users uh, by 2020. Uh, I went back and checked this. That actually turned to be pretty much an accurate uh, description, a little bit depending on the source that you use. You know, uh, uh, I think that you get five billion, perhaps you know, a little bit over, a little bit under, depending on the source. But it's, I think that that was sort of more or less in line. Uh, then I also made made an attempt at the prediction of connected devices. So not only mobile phones, but you know, obviously now now sort of in hindsight, cars, IoT, etc. And my prediction was twenty billion or more than twenty billion devices. By 2020, that was uh, a significant underestimation. There's more than 40 billion today, so I was sort of off by off by half when it came to uh, interconnected uh, uh, or sort of internet connected devices. Then another prediction that I also made was uh, online advertising spend, and the reason why online advertising spend is that obviously so many business models rely on advertising. They offer a free service and then they monetize through uh, ads. So it's very, very sort of critical for the value in the sector. Uh, and obviously that's how that's how Google monetizes more or less uh, exclusively still, still today. I made the prediction that there was going to be 200 billion uh, of advertising spend online in 2020. Uh, last year it was 325. Uh, uh, so again, you know, a pretty significant underestimation. Uh, and then, 
And then if you sort of go through other things like e-commerce spend, again, I was probably uh, I was probably sort of uh, uh, probably 30 to 40 percent too conservative. I estimate that 2.5 trillion. I think that is closer to 4 trillion today. Um, but I think that where I was most off was the internet market cap, which at the time in 2000 and, uh, 2012, November 2012, probably wasn't much more than uh, you know a trillion, perhaps a little bit more than a trillion US dollars. Uh, my prediction was that it was going to be three trillion by uh, 2020, and it turned out to be eight. Now, obviously, we are sort of in a, you know, in, in, uh, in, we have been in a more than 10 year bull market. Uh, and obviously, many of these companies had actually uh, received a huge boost as a, as a result of their business models being accelerated by COVID. But I think that this is probably where I was sort of most, most of. Then, then, in, then, and then there were a couple of other predictions that I made, which was the number of internet companies in the top 100 companies uh, globally from just a market cap standpoint. Uh, I predicted 10 plus, there are 10. So so that was sort of similar. So generally speaking, if you sort of try to sum it up, I was, I was probably on many of the dollar related predictions off by a pretty significant, uh, pretty significant uh, margin. Um, and I think that if, if, if you sort of think about many of the companies that had become really, really important over the last 10 years and sort of really emerged over the last 10 years. Uh, I think that in many cases, you know, we didn't really know. I, I, I think that I would have been quite uh, far off and mistaken if I had tried to sort of pinpoint specific sectors. Uh, I think that things just uh, happened much more quickly than, uh, than, uh, uh, than I expected over that 10 year period. So again, sort of underestimating change in the longer term, probably overestimating it in the short term. Something that came up here that that would be interesting to get your perspective on is you said that you lived and worked, as it were, through the dot-com bubble and, and, and that whole shebang. How should we think differently, if at all, uh, about that time compared to now? So, uh, uh, so I think that there there was uh, there were a number of sort of uh, factors that uh, uh, that created this enormous bubble back then. Uh, one was uh, obviously the emergence of uh, uh, the emergence of internet, and remember, all of this was basically desktop based at the time. There was no mobile internet whatsoever. You know, you know. There weren't really any any sort of mobile devices that were uh, uh, connected or or not not connected in sort of any uh, practical way from a from a from a daily daily perspective. So it was all it was all desktop. Then uh, few people talk about it anymore, but there was this almost hysteria about Y two K about a yes. lot of old mainframe computers having only been programmed to take into account two annual digits so uh, and, and and not four so you know going from 1999 to 2000 was going to wreak havoc on uh, the whole digital world at the time and there was an enormous amount of money spent 
to to sort of develop software and 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 to do all kinds of redundancy plans. So there was just a lot of capital going into the overall software and technology uh, sector. Uh, and then again, we we had been we, in in two thousand we had been in a nine year bull market. You know there was a short recession in nineteen ninety one. Uh, in the U.S., I think that it, obviously it was a little bit more severe in uh, Finland, um, but but you know again we were sort of at the tail end of a nine-year bull run. So I think that it was sort of a combination of all of these that added fuel to the flame uh, that sort of then caused this enormous explosion in uh, market value of many of these stocks. But the fact of the matter is that there was very very little monetization, and and. Uh, Companies were raising enormous amount of capital with literally PowerPoint business plans, very few users, and and even if they had some users, those users weren't generating any revenues. And obviously, today it's a very very different uh, situation where, uh, you know, all, all of the big companies in the sector, you know, the top ten top ten companies that uh, are, are are part of the top one hundred that I just referred to. Obviously, all of them are very significantly profitable. Have, in, in depending a little bit on the model, very significant uh, margins. You know, if, you know, even above, yeah, even above fifty percent, fifty percent EBIT margins. So I think that there's just you know much you know in, uh, several orders of magnitude change in the amount of revenues and the amount of profits. In and and of course, still today we talk a lot about sort of just. Expectations fueling uh, fueling values, but it was just much much different uh, back then. And obviously, I would say that just in terms of number of companies, I would expect that out of the public companies, or sort of trying to estimate back out of the public companies at the time, I bet you that ninety percent went uh, belly up. Uh, so even if they managed to get go public, uh, and by the way, the activity was really just in the U.S. Some in the in Europe, but really in the U.S. mostly. I think that probably 90% of them were bought out or or or, or just went out of uh, business. But of course, there are companies that are still very important that went public during that period, including eBay, uh, including Amazon, including Yahoo, and obviously, really, sort of the the company that has done the best out of all of those hundreds, if not thousands, of companies that were pub- that went public was uh, Amazon. Uh, and I, I have to. I have to uh, mention, I lived in New York at the time, and I remember that uh, this was probably in early 2000 when Forbes ran an article that got quite a lot of attention, where they were arguing over five or six pages in Forbes why Amazon was going to go bust, uh, and 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 so so it was it was really you know uh, for people at the time you know it was very difficult to discern which one was going to be the winner. Uh, and, and 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 a lot of the arguments that uh, were presented against Amazon's potential success were sort of absolutely sound corporate finance arguments, uh, but obviously they turned out to be uh, uh, to be absolutely wrong. And and uh, given that Amazon had raised financing and obviously was run by one of the most outstanding business leaders over the last 100 years, perhaps in history. Uh, they basically managed to grow throughout that subsequent dot-com crash, and then uh, and then built uh, one of the most valuable businesses in the world. 
Yeah, there there seems to have been an article on Amazon like that. Maybe you know every year, still still people are like, okay, now it it seems like people are accepting that they're here to stay. But it seems like there's been a lot of analysts and and people with like kind of a personal vendetta also against Amazon and and trying to to, to motivate that they they won't survive and and they won't be yeah. here. Uh, absolutely, and I think that you know I'm a huge admirer of uh, Jeff Bezos and 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 what he has done and. The fact of the matter is that for, even as a public company, for probably a good 20-year period, uh, perhaps not quite 20 years, but at least 15 years, the business was constantly running at a loss, uh, or perhaps break-even, and perhaps a perhaps a P&L loss, but you know, free cash flow-wise, uh, break-even, um, and and he was just. Constantly, as soon as he got some more contribution, he was just investing it in in uh, new businesses. And you know, going from a pure first party inventory taking, book selling model to taking inventory of lots of different things to uh, opening up a marketplace. And then, obviously, you know, the biggest move, sort of at least for now was going into uh, uh, cloud services and building up uh, AWS and sort of always delaying gratification. Uh, and what I mean with that is that, you know, refrain from generating profits. And as soon as you get more contribution from your existing business, you plow it into the next uh, growth opportunity. And, and first of all, you need to be, I think that there are a few things that for, for, for you know, for that to make sense, you know, you have to have a really strong belief that what you're invest, investing in uh, is really going to uh, uh, become successful uh, over time. Uh, you have to make sure that you get the funding to support the company during that time, and and to basically uh, make sure that that uh, you 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 retain the confidence of your customers, of your employees, and ultimately your shareholders that they're there to uh, back you, and he actually showed the way how to build a really, really big uh, company over time by sacrificing profits in the near term to build a much bigger business. And if you think about many of the businesses that uh, have then subsequently emerged and perhaps are criticized today and people say that the multiples are super high or perhaps there aren't even any profit multiples because they're loss making, uh, they are following exactly the same uh, playbook like uh, uh, like like uh, Jeff Bezos and you know we've been fortunate enough to invest in some of those companies. One one that I would mention here is, for example, Mate One uh, in China, the world's biggest food delivery business. That for a number of years it was set up in 2010. Actually, I met the founder very soon thereafter. For probably nine years, the business was loss making. So you have to fund the business for nine years. And by the way. It was loss making to the tune of several billion dollars in 2015 and 2016. But he managed to find investors who were willing to back him. And then he ended up building you know, a business which today is worth 300 billion and which is actually very profitable today, especially in its core food service business. But again, what then that allows you to do when you have a strong revenue generating business, profit generating business, uh, contribution margin generating business. Is that you invest in uh, lots of other lots of other areas, and that's exactly what, for example, Amazon did. You know what made one then end up doing 15 years uh, 15 years later, 
And that's how you big, but that's how you build big platform businesses uh, over time. Now, just perhaps perhaps one one thing to note is that obviously a lot of entrepreneurs have this vision, uh, but it's in my opinion very much about execution. Uh, so you know you're not going to have hundreds of platform companies being 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 formed and being successful. You know, obviously there's going to be a very very strong uh, and very dramatic sort of winning down of the best companies. Uh, so, so you will have thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs try to do this, but obviously then 10 years later or 15 years later or 20 years later, we always end up talking about the successful, successful cases. So, you know, the likelihood that you're going to be successful and, you know, manage to build, build these huge companies is, is obviously not that high. Uh, and, and in our experience, what really makes an absolutely massive difference is, is sort of the founder and his team. So even though we invest at the late stage, sort of in the VC and private equity parlance, if you will, um, uh, you know, it's still very much sort of a bet on uh, founders' ability to grow five times, 10 times, 100 times uh, in some cases. Yeah, this is kind of a good segue into to actually a topic where we wanted to discuss with you is the, there's a lot of discussion now about this winner takes takes all um, phenomenon and, and you have the likes of Amazon, Google, Apple, Microsoft com- and Facebook completely dominating their, their sectors. And there's now a lot of talk about regulation and there's a lot of talk that, you know, can this last? And there's different arguments. There's arguments for that they will last is, is the, the very phenomenon you describe with network effects and, and kind of building something so big with, and, and having the ability to, to basically be unprofitable for a long time. While while taking market share, which then creates this kind of um, yeah quite a big barrier barrier of entry for for many companies because they would need to also sustain uh, similar losses over a long per- period of time, or alternatively come up with something that's way better than Amazon or Apple or whatever. So how do you view this scenario? Because if you look historically, most companies are. Uh, yeah, most companies that have been <laughs> have been big or have have been market leaders have disappeared over time for whatever reason. So do you think this this time is different? Will we still have Amazon, Google, Apple in in ten years, and will they just be bigger, or is is there something in, on the horizon that will shake this up? So uh, uh, I think that the big platform companies today will definitely be there ten years from now. Uh, and they will be bigger, uh, no doubt, no doubt about it. But I also think that, um, you know, I think that there's never been a more interesting time in the history of the world to be an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, there are so many foundational technologies that you can basically build your business idea on. You know, there are billions of uh, connected uh, connected uh, users and, and and willing consumers uh, to go after and I would say that uh, especially in uh, uh, in in sort of many of the key regions in the world from the US to China to, to Europe as well uh, you have a thriving and very deep ecosystem for 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 funding uh, and, and and obviously for talent so I think that 
the, the, the opportunity for budding entrepreneurs, you know, targeting the digital uh, economy has never been uh, uh, more, more, more attractive in my view. Now, that's, that's, that's easy to say. Then to actually build those companies, it's still very difficult because um, obviously many, many, many entrepreneurs see these opportunities and they go after them. And for, for every good sort of potential business idea, you might have you know, hundred entrepreneurs pursuing it, or several thousand entrepreneurs uh, uh, pursuing it. So, uh, obviously, the competition competition is intense. But I have great a great belief that uh, new entrepreneurs will, over time, be successful in eating up uh, market share from the big companies. Uh, and 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 I think that that's uh, you know inevitable. So, on one hand, I would say that. The big companies today, they're absolutely going to be there in, you know, I would say that the vast majority of them are still going to be there in an even more uh, powerful form 10 years from now. But I think that the opportunity set to go into other segments, you know, innovate sort of around the edge to then go after bigger, bigger companies is absolutely, is absolutely there. And then, you know, if you look at many of the, many of the big companies, when you when you are huge, uh, it's very difficult to be nimble uh, and and sort of go after uh, go after new opportunities. So if you think about some of the really big companies that have been built and have really emerged over the last uh, five years, and I'm sort of perhaps they were founded ten years ago, but have really sort of emerged over the last five, five years. And I would sort of highlight companies like uh, Uber. Uh, I would highlight companies like uh, Do- uh, Uber in ride-hailing, uh, DoorDash, DoorDash in uh, food delivery in the U.S., Mate One in food delivery in uh, China. Um, what else could I mention? Kwai Show that just recently went to the stock exchange in uh, Hong Kong and is now a $150 billion U.S. dollar company in, in uh, short video. Byte Dance, of course, through Douyin in China and TikTok in, uh, outside, of, uh, outside of China. Um, these are all opportunities that uh, Google or Facebook or Tencent or Alibaba uh, could have pursued, but you know, and, and they could have they could have created their own businesses with, which would have been worth hundreds of billions, but they didn't do it. Uh, and there again, there are many reasons for this, but I think that fundamentally, when when it's a big corporation, you know, it's difficult to really continue to be super innovating and taking uh, risks. And then I think another thing which probably holds back some of the big companies is also market expectations. Market expectations about revenue growth, market expectations, especially around profitability. You know, if you don't feel that, uh, you know, if you don't feel that you have to generate ten billion dollars of net income next year because that's what the market is uh, uh, is expecting, um, you know, if you have the if you have the freedom to basically just investing ten billion dollars instead in new initiatives. Which is obviously the conclusion that uh, Jeff Bezos came to year in year out. Uh, you may lose out on some of those uh, opportunities. So, I think the fact of the matter is that uh, you you will continue to have young, ambitious, smart founders that will go after interesting uh, opportunities. And 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 uh, the technologies are there, uh, the users are there, and I think that it's. There's no doubt. There's no doubt going to be massive competition, uh, you know, among these smaller companies, but also 
they're all going to go after the big companies, uh, big companies over time. So I'm sort of, I'm sort of saying a little bit of both. You know, the big companies are going to get bigger, but I think that there's also going to be a lot of startups that are going to be massively successful. Um, and actually, if you look at, uh, you know, or, or if, if you had to, if you put me on the spot, and we've done some work sort of internally uh, about this, you know, if you have around 7.5 trillion of internet sector market cap today, sort of in 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 in, in rough rough numbers, um, based on our expectations, and I don't think that they are too aggressive. Uh, and, and we've done it in a very sort of granular way. Uh, you know, our expectation is that there's probably going to be 25 trillion of market cap, uh, 20, 25 trillion of market cap, internet market cap uh, in 2030. Um, uh, and I think that that's, especially at 20 trillion, you know, that's roughly a three times increase over 10 years. I think that that should be uh, achievable. Now, if you sort of think about that value increase, uh, you know, I would probably say that uh, uh, half of that, if not more, perhaps two thirds, is going to come from an increased value in already public companies. Uh, and then, you know, you're going to have you're going to have sort of a smaller percentage, uh, smaller percentage being generated from companies. Uh, that uh, that are going to be founded, and and that's sort of pretty natural. But I think that the opportunity is uh, really really big, and and the market I expect will continue to surprise us on uh, the upside again in the longer term. If I may, <clears throat> you offered it, so I, I will put you on the spot a little bit and ask <laughs> you. Uh, uh, you you mentioned the the older the the sort of the bigger companies like Google and, and such, and 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 sort of maybe looking in the long term and what the challenges are in the long term for them business wise how do you see how do you see the implications of their growth in terms of the obstacles that might come later i mean in in one sense i don't know if you implied this but in one sense it can seem like these companies are already a fundamental part of the as it were internet infrastructure in a sense and people are already i mean i, I remember during the it was the last year or, or earlier this year there was talk about in the US mainly that should these be considered public utilities like the telephone lines back in the days where were were legislated. How do you see just in general these sort of obstacles that might come later as these companies grow and cement their status as as, as fundament, fundamental integral parts of what this entire technological internet ecosystem is built upon? Yeah, you know what I think that uh, uh, you're absolutely right. I think that uh, there are going to be sort of significant uh, challenges for them, especially from a regulatory uh, perspective. Uh, and, and you see it in all parts of the world, uh, uh, you know, calls for some of them to, at least in some parts of their businesses, be treated as public utilities uh, in the US. There's been calls for breakups of, of, of some of these companies. Uh, in Europe, given that Unfortunately, there are very few homegrown real giants. Uh, there's been more talk about taxi, taxing the big US companies for the revenues and the profits that they generate in different countries. Um, uh, and, then, and then also in China, especially in the, last, uh, in the last year, I think that there's been some very significant uh, moves by the Chinese government to rein in what they think 
uh, uh, is sort of unfair competition, taking unfair advantage uh, of, of, of market uh, market dominance. And for example, and obviously all of this is very public, uh, insisting on Ant Financial being much more strongly capitalized. Uh, uh, so so I, I do think that this sort of regulatory regulatory pressure will only intensify going forward. And I think that you're right. I think that that will, to a certain degree, cap the potential of the big companies. And uh, it will make it on the margin easier for startups to perhaps go after different opportunities as these really sort of big platform companies are, are going to be limited uh, in some in some ways in terms of their sort of degrees of freedom to uh, pursue different uh, opportunities or and, and sort of lock in lock in different uh, uh, opportunities and sort of try to lock up customers I think that this could be absolutely uh, massive massive pressure from from governments and, and regulators to try to uh, try to rein that in let's uh, continue the guessing game a little bit since you're good at it and uh, uh, it's it's always interesting and and it's always hard to get people to you know guess and it's we can all uh, acknowledge that it's it's guesswork and and no one knows uh, but you're in a very unique position to to think about these things so uh, we already talked about underestimating the, the long-term change but overestimating the, the short-term uh, ones so what about you know looking as an investor or as an entrepreneur now it's a, it's a very uh, yeah it's the best time in history you said so what are some specific sectors uh, you are most excited about there's a lot of talk now about different technologies ranging from cryptocurrencies to and, and the underlying uh, technology of blockchain to gene editing and, and these kind of CRISPR um, technologies or 3D printing, food tech, um, fintech. There's like, there's a lot of, seems, there's a lot of uh, words out there, uh, but which ones should you be serious about if you were to, yeah, look at opportunities for, for this decade as an entrepreneur or as an investor? Well, I, I don't want to sort of pick, you know, I, I don't want to be sort of too uh, too detailed in my prognostication because I know that 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 will just turn out to be uh, wrong. But I think that you did mention a number of uh, a number of sort of a number of big opportunities. I think that there perhaps to take a step back. I think that there are some really important foundational technologies uh, which have uh, which are available for entrepreneurs, uh, you know, such as obviously 5G rollouts uh, taking place globally now at different speeds in different countries. But I think that that can be a real game changer, just like 4G was such a huge game changer in the last, you know, five to five to eight years. And just like GPS was such a game changer, perhaps going back a little bit uh, uh, further, I think that 5G, given much reduced latency in the network, in the cellular network, much, much higher bandwidth, I think that that is going to offer up all kinds of opportunities for for uh, entrepreneurs. I also think that uh, uh, AI, you know, different forms of machine learning, you know, you already see sort of the most successful ones being very, very focused, most successful big companies 
you know, are really using AI in many ways to offer a better service from Amazon's recommendation engine to, uh, to, to you know, TikTok's uh, serving up of, uh, ser- serving of new videos, which, you know, get you, get you hooked. And all of this is basically using machine learning and AI to, to different degrees to offer, offer sort of, uh, offer a better service. And I think that some of these uh, technologies, you know, the, the are, are going to be, are important and will just continue to be even more important. And it's the entrepreneurs that can harness these foundational technologies to then sort of offer a better experience in various, uh, in various sub-segments. But you mentioned a few, uh, I think blockchain, blockchain is going to have a, different blockchain technologies is going to have a massive impact on uh, on, on on financial uh, services i think that 3d printing could have it on manufacturing i'm absolutely no expert but uh, i think that it stands the reason that over time that's going to have a big uh, uh, big impact i think that uh, electric vehicles you know autonomous driving uh, gene editing i think that they're already established in many ways and they will continue to grow and then you know, I think that over time, uh, and people have been talking about this as the holy grail for more than 20 years, quantum con- computing. I think that if you can actually uh, build, you know, a uh, 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 sort of real working quantum computer, and obviously an enormous amount of resources are being invested here, I think that that can also have sort of a huge uh, impact uh, over time. So. I don't want to sort of limit, 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 uh, limit, limit, uh, sort of myself in my in my thinking, and I don't think that entrepreneurs should be sort of limiting themselves. So I think that there are lots of different uh, opportunities, and then you know there are many known unknowns. There are many unknown unknowns. So who knows how the world is going to uh, to uh, how, what is really going to sort of have the biggest impact, um, but. Uh, in, in my experience, uh, the impact of technology uh, has has sort of continued to surprise on the upside, and I don't think that we're going to sort of see a leveling a leveling off of that. Now, I'd like to pivot. If okay, John, can you take us to Asia or China, maybe more specifically? Um, I it's some. Considering how big this sort of global shift in 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 whatever dynamics you want to talk about, it's it's almost remarkable still how meager the the public intuition about it is. So I'd like to, if it's okay, take us to 2010 when you moved to China for the first time to work for GSD Global. Uh, what was the scene, as it were, like back then, and how has it developed during these years? What have you experienced? Well, I would say that if you say that uh, it's not well understood, I think that you must be talking about it from the perspective of a European observer. Because yes. if you are in China and if you are in Asia, I think that it's uh, uh, very obvious uh, how the daily life of individuals have changed massively as a result of technology uh, in the last years. And obviously, if you look at if you and, and, and many of these Asian countries, they're very very different. You know, China has a 14 trillion uh, economy, nominal GDP per capita is 10,000 US dollars. By the way, in tier one cities, it's it's probably 25,000 dollars. So so not far from many places in uh, Western Europe. Uh, India is still much smaller. You know, the economy is probably one fifth. 
the size of uh, of China, although the number of people is is, is probably the same. So, uh, so so GDP GDP per capita is obviously then sort of one fifth as well, two thousand dollars. Indonesia some somewhere in between at four thousand dollars. So there are there are just very very big differences between these different countries. But I think that there are a few common themes which are the same. One is uh, uh, ever increasing urbanization. Uh, and it really is that urbanization that in many respects fuel a consumption upgrade as people move from rural to 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 cities. Uh, you know they 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 need uh, they need housing, they need transportation. Uh, you know they're going to be contributing as uh, as as uh, employees in different businesses. They will start spending in a different way. So urbanization leads to massive consumption upgrade and if there's one theme that has been sort of really at, at, at the core of uh, of, of uh, you know the Chinese economy of the last few years is sort of this massive consumption consumption uh, uh, upgrade then of course throughout uh, India uh, and China uh, you had this massive rollout of uh, 4g networks over the last several years now you're moving into 5g especially in uh, China and um, you know, massive increase in smartphone uh, smartphone penetration, which enables all kinds of uh, all kinds of services. So, you know, the dig- digital economy is actually, in my opinion, much more important in 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 uh, in in China in particular, but also in India, than it is perhaps in Europe and US from a relative perspective. And e-commerce product e-commerce penetration in China is already thirty percent. Um, you know, so that's that's you know, so thirty percent of all products are actually sold online, and I don't think that that sort of increase is going to stop any stop anytime soon. So it's an absolutely enormous uh, uh, digital uh, uh, economy uh, that that has uh, emerged in uh, that has emerged in China, and I think that it will continue to grow uh, very significantly. And then perhaps a few words on just the tech ecosystem. Uh, again, it's very, very deep. It's very robust with uh, financing being available at different levels from, you know, pre-seed all the way to pre-IPO and then, you know, uh, very clear sort of path to IPOs either in the US or, or, or Hong Kong and, and, and perhaps to a slightly lesser degree in, uh, uh, on a shore in Shanghai for the, uh, for the moment. But, uh, I'm a huge believer that in the next 50 years, um, you will see uh, across the world, regardless whether it's uh, Latin America, China, India, Africa, Southeast Asia. Uh, I think that uh, I'm, I'm, I have a very positive view about the development. Now, I think that there are obviously massive amount of uh, challenges as well. Uh, uh, political, political, political challenges. Um, uh, you know, income differentials, differences in uh, education, etc. Uh, but I think that overall, uh, you know, all the people in uh, emerging markets, they want to. The consumers, they will, they, they want to have the same life as uh, people in the most advanced economies in the world. And I think that human ingenuity, human, uh, uh, human. Uh, uh, initiative 
uh, ambition and, and sort of the desire to create a better life for yourself and your children is very, very strong. Uh, so I think that we're going to see continued growth in the next 50 years and, you know, many of the emerging markets catching up with the, with the developed world. Yeah, if you already look at the predictions on on GDP growth and and what the biggest economies are going to be in 10 years, you can already see that that trend uh, taking place. While with China, China being the, the biggest, and and also India predicted to, in some some instances or some predictions also to to overtake the US within the next 10 years. And you have Indonesia and Turkey, and and these kinds of of economies just just booming uh, hopefully within the next 10 years. So is this something also as a we're sitting in in Helsinki, Copenhagen. Uh, so is this something as a Western entrepreneur you should also understand and take into account that that maybe you know Europe isn't the only place anymore, or maybe the U.S. isn't the, the obvious and first choice for exporting or entering a new market? You should also start looking um, east. Well, I think that many of the most successful entrepreneurs in uh, Europe have already done it for many years. Uh, and and uh, I'll just mention a few examples. Uh, Spotify, obviously, right from the beginning, was really focused on the global opportunity, you know, going back 12, 12, 13 years. Klarna has made great strides to very early on uh, uh, expanding outside of uh, Sweden. Deliveroo, for example, which is now going public in uh, public in uh, in in uh, Europe uh, in in London, uh, you know, has businesses in a number of cities. That's more a business which is focused on particular cities than countries. But you know, they have a presence in uh, Hong Kong. They have a presence in uh, Dubai, etc. Um, and and of course, Volt Volt in Finland. They have. Uh, uh, Finland is a pretty small percentage of their revenues, and they have very successfully been able to expand outside of uh, Finland, outside of the Nordic region, you know, into into uh, Eastern Europe, uh, into Israel, and now you know they're targeting uh, Japan as well. So I think that the opportunities opportunities uh, uh, is absolutely uh, there for European entrepreneurs as well. Do you ever see this is I think we're, we're we're going far now but do you ever see uh, the global dynamics changing right now we have Google Amazon Facebook Apple etc do you ever see these as being Chinese companies and what would have to happen and what are the implications I hope that's not too many uh, questions in one Well I think that uh, that's probably one of the most difficult uh, difficult uh, answers or sort of uh, questions to answer because it's geopolitics is very very difficult to uh, predict uh, and and who would have predicted, you know, the geopolitical tensions that we've seen over the last few years, even back in 2015. Um, so so uh, I think that there will continue to be uh, tensions. Um, entrepreneurs, on the other hand, in the most most uh, ambitious entrepreneurs, they will always try to build global businesses. Um, uh, but I, but I do think I, I think that you're right. I think the geopolitical tensions, um, you know, various restrictions, may well hold them back. And I think that uh, uh, unfortunately, I think that we've sort of seen these walls go up between different parts of the world uh, in the last few years. But I think that it's very difficult to predict 
uh, how that will uh, evolve. Maybe before we round off, um, can't have a discussion in in this in 2021 without a mention of the coronavirus. And maybe from your perspective, with with technology or tech companies and and uh, and overall just international business, how do you see coronavirus? Is it kind of a you know decade definer already? Is it something that's going to change the way companies do business, the way we work, or is it too early to to call yet? Well, I think that it has already caused uh, caused a massive impact uh, in the last twelve uh, months, and and obviously a lot of uh, consumption activities, uh, you know, how, how people spend their time, has 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 moved online, uh, one way or the other. Uh, you know, we have done some research. We estimate that the growth rate of consumer spend going from offline to online has probably accelerated by five to 10 times uh, in the last 12 months. So that's the growth rate increasing. Um, you know, that that's probably not, obviously it's not going to sustain, uh, but I think that it has basically moved uh, online spending to a new level uh, and, and it's not going to go down from there. It's going to grow from there. But you've just had this massive move that would probably have taken a couple of years happen in a 12-month uh, period. Uh, you also see sort of time spent online, uh, you know, you know, through, through your sp- smartphone or, or 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 through other devices. That has also increased in our estimation by you know at least 15 percent, which is actually actually very significant. Probably 45, 45 to 55 minutes per day. Uh, on uh, on average, so I think that we've seen huge changes in uh, behavior, and I don't think that we're going to go back to uh, back to the old old world. Um, now, now uh, I think that to say that it's a decade definer, I think that that's perhaps a little bit more difficult. You know, if you go back to the financial crisis, uh, in some ways you could say that it ended up becoming sort of perhaps. Uh, uh, decade definer because of a lot of actions and and phenomenon phenomena that happened sort of as a result of it indirectly uh, uh, but i think so i think that covid is obviously having an absolutely massive impact on the daily life of different people i think a much much more significant impact on the daily life of of uh, billions and billions of people uh, than the financial crisis. I actually think that if you think about something that has impacted people's daily life globally in such a massive way, I think you have to go back to uh, you know to to the Second World War to really have you know a phenomenon that sort of impacts so many people uh, at the same time. So when that happens, of course, it has a number of uh, number of uh, implications. So you know, I, I do think that it will. Uh, and of course, it's going to stay in everyone who's sort of been been living through this. I think that this is going to stay in in our common memory for uh, for for decades. And people will sort of look back and reflect uh, about what sort of changed then. So I do think that in, you know to sort of answer your answer your answer your question, I do think that it has had a very very significant impact. And and I think that many of those changes will uh, stay with us for uh, for a long time. How do you see this uh, projection that many many uh, 
well, mainstream media read it, and, and then there's a lot of, uh, I, I, Nicholas Christakis talked about this, that there, after a few years, after this crisis hopefully is over, that there would be a new, quote-unquote, roaring 20s, as it were. How do you see this theory? I, I've seen, like, Time yeah. and Newsweek have been milking this uh, headline for, for a long time. Yeah. I think, to, to be honest, that, you know, who knows? Uh, uh, who, who knows, but... I think that there's definitely arguments, very sound arguments that you would that you could uh, uh, that you could put uh, put forward. Uh, that uh, you know, when when people can travel, when people can spend freely, I think that there's definitely going to be there's that will see you know massive massive sort of uh, massive activity. And of course, if you just sort of think about things like like leisure travel. Uh, restaurant business, lodging business, after uh, an absolutely horrible 12 months, and I think that this will still continue for some time, that they could sort of see, uh, you know, a resumption of a very sort of strong, uh, or return, I should say, to sort of strong, strong activity. So I'm, I'm not sure if it's, uh, if, if I would use the word roaring 20s, but I do think that people have been staying at home in many parts of the world for the last 12 months they haven't they haven't they haven't bought uh, a new apartment uh, they haven't bought a new car you know a lot of capital investment decisions have been postponed because of uncertainty and, and because of difficulty of just sort of uh, of 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 uh, of, of uh, doing different things so i think that there is certainly unpent unpent demand that that uh, that we will see basically being released released going forward. Maybe as a rounding off question, um, it would be interesting to get your take. Uh, I recently did, uh, together with Aalto Yliopisto, there's going to be a shameless plug here, uh, so ignore it if you're against plugs. But we, we did a, a short podcast series on the platform economy, and that kind of opened my eyes to what that actually means. Because when when... I used to think about platform economy being, you know, Uber or Airbnb, and that's about it. And then I realized through that podcast series that basically everything is a platform, if you think about it. So you have the internet being maybe the mother of all platforms, and then you have the smartphone layer that enables even more people to to then uh, add to the network effect. And that then brings uh, more services and more platforms and sub-platforms and, and all that kind of stuff. So how do you, it would be really interesting since many of the businesses you invest in are these kinds of platform uh, businesses and also rely on the mother platform internet or the sp- smartphones so do you do you kind of dif- make a distinction here between the internet and platforms or how do you kind of view this phenomenon and is it something that's going to just continue um, growing and, and defining the way we do business well uh, I would say a few things I think that you know when when uh, an entrepreneur starts, You typically have to be pretty focused on one uh, on one opportunity, but as you grow, obviously, you know many of these entrepreneurs realize that if you can get customers to come back more frequently, do more things on your platform, offer them new services, you know that's an interesting business proposition. So I think that many many entrepreneurs absolutely have this platform thinking because it makes such obvious business sense so 
you know, regardless of the company, internet company and many other companies, I think if they have an opportunity to expand their business and become more frequently used as a platform, I think that, you know, that's obviously what you would, uh, what you would like to pursue. But I think that this platform thinking, I think that it's been mo- most prevalent, mo- most prevalent uh, uh, in, in, in different internet services, you know, basically software driven platforms that you can get consumers to uh, consumers to come back, and then you know perhaps on the hardware side, uh, uh, that's absolutely, for example, what Apple has been pursuing as well. You know, they've tried to make it as, in many ways, as close to platform as possible, so that you know when people switch their smartphone or uh, or, or or switch uh, you know or, or change change a laptop or or, or iPad. You know, it's just so much easier to use all of the services and everything uh, on on a new Apple phone instead of going to Android, for example. So, so I think that many companies try to pursue this uh, platform uh, platform strategy just because it makes a lot of sense, uh, lot of sense for them. So I think that you will continue to uh, you will continue to uh, see this. Now, you know, some of these companies are going to be more successful. And more adept in pursuing these platform strategies than uh, than uh, than other. And if you go go back and sort of look at a lot of initiatives of the big uh, of the big uh, tech companies, you know, a lot of them ten years ago were trying to launch all kinds of social networking initiatives. Uh, vast majority of them failed. So it's very easy to say that you're going to pursue a platform strategy. It's actually very difficult to execute at scale over a longer period of time but i have no doubt that many entrepreneurs will continue to try to uh, try to do it because it just makes uh, makes a lot of uh, sense from the business business perspective great thank you so much for for your time and your insights it's been it's been a pleasure to talk to you again thank you so much great thank you very much guys take care and Bye-bye. thank you thanks take care. to all listeners and viewers stay stay tuned for the next episode and leave a comment on who do you think will be the biggest company in 2030 (laughs) bye bye i hope you enjoyed your visit to that conversation as much as we did now if you want to stay updated and keep in touch with us please subscribe to us on youtube follow us on spotify subscribe to us on apple podcast and all other podcast platforms we're also on Twitter, Instagram, and then Facebook. You guessed it, Soap by Slush. Thank you, people, for listening. Bye-bye.